0: Hey, welcome to day two ninety six of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be in Jeremiah 497 through fifty verse ten, and then Psalm one nineteen verses one thirteen through one twenty, and finally 2 Timothy chapter two. So we're continuing today with the oracles against the surrounding nations, the nations that surrounded Judah, and we begin today with Edom. Edom, of course, if you're looking at a map, is a, a Trans Jordanian. Territory. This is uh, where uh, the descendants of Esau occupied, and uh, it is it is east of the Jordan, Transjordanian, right? And uh, but it's it's really far south. So you have Moab that basically is uh, like goes all the way down to the southern tip of the Dead Sea, and it's almost as if the Dead Sea is kind of like the starting point of Edom. Then, so Edom is really far south, um, and. Um, it's it's significant here in that uh it is uh we know from various hints in the in the Bible that um that Edom uh probably all, you know it has pr- a pretty sordid history with Israel right Israel is forbidden from doing anything against her when um uh, she is traveling north through the land even though they are met with a less than a warm welcome uh by their their distant uh, their distant kin, the, the Edomites, um, and throughout their history, there's all kinds of conflicts that you go through. But then, like uh, there, there are some hints that towards the end of Judah's existence, uh, basically when um, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army is all coming against it, that they may have um, collaborated in some sense with, uh, with with the destruction that was happening against Judah. And we can't be sure of that, uh, but like Ezekiel 25.12, for example, really kind of looks like that. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, because Edom acted revengefully against the house of Judah and has grievously offended in taking vengeance on them. Therefore, thus says Lord Yahweh. And then you have an oracle against Edom. Um, You might also recall that in chapter 27 of Jeremiah, uh, Edom was among the collabor the the collaborators with Judah in uh, trying to do something about the uh, Babylonian subjugation alongside of Moab and Ammon and Tyre and Sidon. and remember uh, Jeremiah had sent envoys to all those nations basically um, reigning on their parade. So here is an oracle of judgment against Edom and and uh, I guess the other thing I should probably say is that there's various parts in here that are very similar uh, to, uh, parts of Obadiah, which is a one chapter minor prophet, um, directed pretty much solely against Edom, and uh, it's difficult to tell what the exact relationship is between Jeremiah and Obadiah. They were contemporaries, but um, but yeah, some some of the passages are like very very similar. So is it like is Jeremiah incorporating some stuff that Obadiah said? Is Obadiah incorporating some of Jeremiah's that I don't know if we can really know. We've seen that before with the prophets. Remember, like, Micah has that part from uh, Isaiah 2 in it, for example. Uh, So uh, concerning Edom, is wisdom no more in Taman? Remember, Taman is a a very prominent mountain in Edom, uh, often associated with the place where Yahweh came from. We'll see that also in Habakkuk, uh, speaks that way, uh, where uh, that is the direction that the Lord and his host, his uh, the people of Israel, uh, came from. So, uh, is wisdom no more in Taman? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has her their wisdom vanished? So, um, because uh, if you were wise, you'll do this: flee, turn back, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Dedan. For I will bring calamity—the calamity of Esau—upon him. Remember, I mentioned that uh, Esau. Is uh, eventually settles in the territory of Edom, and the people of Edom are associated with Esau. Um, and uh, and the the destruction on Edom is going to be very very thorough. And this is actually verses nine through um, nine through ten are actually very similar to Obadiah verses five and six. Uh, if grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? And the answer, of course, is yes. Right? Jeremiah likes to ask these rhetorical questions. Um, of course, there would be some stuff left over, and if thieves came by night, would they not destroy only enough for themselves? Right, they're going to take what they're going to take, but there's going to be something left over even uh, after the thieves have been through. But but that's not what the judgment's going to be against you. Rather, I am stripping Esau bare. I've uncovered his hiding places. He's not able to conceal himself. His children are destroyed. His brothers, his neighbors, and he is no more. So. Uh, everyone with whom Edom has had a relationship is gone, and now Edom will be as well, very thoroughly. Um, and then, verse 11 Leave your fatherless children, I will keep them alive, and let your widows trust in me, because essentially there's not going to be any men left. Um, and uh, this verse can perhaps be taken as one of those little remnant verses I've noted that are kind of tacked on to the end of some of these things. Uh, but this also could just be like the words of like a merciful, a wanderer who's going to take care of the people who are left of Edom, um, and if so, there's there's no you know merciful remnant verse at the end of the judgment on Edom like there are um, uh, in, in with with some of the other peoples Jeremiah has spoken against, <clears throat> which kind of. Um, is in line with the way that it's described here with the, the the vineyard with no gleanings left over, right? It seems like it's going to be very thorough. If those who did not deserve to drink the cup must drink it, right? Because there are people who are getting trampled in this judgment, even though maybe their hearts were true to the Lord. I, I would think, uh, you know, of like that the household of uh, Gedaliah, right? The son of Shaphan, I've noted that it's a very righteous family in the line um, in the land and even Jeremiah himself, right There's clearly people in the lot in the land who uh, were trying to follow the Lord, but because the nation as a whole is kind of uh, is is rebellious and especially her leaders, right the 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 fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge um so if 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 there were even some people kind of caught up in the judgment of God in, in his bringing of, Uh, the armies of Nebuchadnezzar against the land. What about you? Um, uh, Because you certainly deserve it, Edom, is the idea. You shall not go unpunished, but you must drink the cup." And here is that imagery of drinking the cup of the wrath of God, which we've already seen in Jeremiah and we will see again in the Old Testament. "...for I have sworn by myself that Basra shall become a horror." Basra is the capital of Edom, the, the capital city. Um, a taunt, a waste, a curse, this was what will come of her, and her cities shall be perpetual wastes. Notice her cities, she's the capital city, and there are other cities under her. I have heard a message from Yahweh, an envoy sent among the nations. Now here we are in another section, verses 14 through 16, which are very similar to Obadiah 1 through 4. Um, Gather yourselves together and come against her and rise up for battle, for behold, I will make you small among the nations, despised among mankind." The horror that you inspire, so Edom has been formidable in her time. She has caused misery for other peoples, um, uh, but th- th- that is not something that, you you know, you were wrong to rest your security in that, in your ability to to uh, kind of bully other people around. That has deceived you, the pride of your heart. You who live in the clefts of the rock who hold the height of the hill. That's kind of like a classic thing that obadiah says against <clears throat> edom this is the idea is that they're they have a very like kind of like mountainous terrain um and there are plenty of places to hide in there and oftentimes <clears throat> they would in times of um, trouble um or conflict uh, but there will be no way to hide though you make your nest as high as the eagles again there's plenty of high places for them to go I will bring you down from there, declares Yahweh. Uh, Edom shall become a horror. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified, will hiss. Um, This is a typical uh, prophetic denouncement, right? As when Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring cities were overthrown, which was not too far from Edom, uh, no man shall dwell there. No man shall sojourn her. Um, And the Lord himself will be like a lion coming out of the jungle of the Jordan, right, because that's where... Uh, that's the direction where the Lord is, right? He's across the Jordan in 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 Judah, against a perennial pasture. So, like uh, like a lion coming against unsuspecting sheep, um, I will suddenly make him run away from her. Okay, so like uh, I'm going to scatter your peoples, and, and I will appoint over her whomever I choose. Um, of course, this is often uh, this is this is in line with him using Nebuchadnezzar. As his instrument of judgment. For who is like me? Who will summon me? What shepherd can stand before me? Okay, when if you are on the wrong side of God's judgment, um, uh, you are not in a good position. No one can stand before the Lord. Um, Therefore, hear the plan that Yahweh has made against Edom, that he has formed against the inhabitants of Teman. There's that that mountain mentioned again, even the little ones of the flock will be dragged away. surely their fold shall be appalled at their fate, right? Still being con- compared to this flock that the Lord like a lion is 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 attacking. At the sound of their fall, the earth shall tremble. the sound of their cries shall be heard even at the sea of reeds. This is Yom Suf. so <laughs> back where I- where Israel originated, they will hear um, your cry. And as uh, Edom was described as an eagle, right, in uh, verse 16, uh, hiding among the clefts of the rock, here um, one will mount up and fly swiftly like an eagle and spread his wings against Basra, and the heart of the warriors of of, um, Edom shall be like a day when a woman is in her birth pangs. And as I said, there's no kind of like rosy um, uh, word of hope, here at the end as there is in, in some of these other oracles of judgment. Um similar actually to the next oracle, which is against Damascus. Damascus, of course, a very prominent city in Aramea. Um, <clears throat> and uh we've we've seen that there's plenty of conflict between the Israelites and Damascus over the years, um, both being in league with Damascus, but more often than not being um their uh their enemies and often often having to fight against them Hamath and Arpad are confounded these are other uh, prominent aramean cities for they've heard the bad news they've heard about what's happened in Damascus they melt in fear they're troubled like a sea that cannot be quiet right that's their their word. they've heard what's happened to the greatest of their cities what's going to happen to them Damascus has become feeble she turned to flee panic seized her anguish and sorrow has taken over her um, as a as in a woman as as if in a woman in labor, uh, a metaphor we've seen a lot, and we just saw that again when talking about Edom in verse 22. And these these people who are hearing the news, right? Uh, they love Damascus. Damascus is kind of like, you know, it's awesome. But uh, so how is the famous city not forsaken, the city of my joy? Okay? Um, therefore her young men shall fall in her squares and all her soldiers shall be destroyed in that day. I will kindle a fire in the wall of Damascus, and it will devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad, of course, as we've noted, is most likely a throne name given to various kings of Damascus, um, as we've seen several Ben-Hadads in the Old Testament. Next up we have, um, uh, actually, the next two oracles against nations are both ones that don't receive a ton of attention— in the Old Testament, but obviously they were considered important enough in Jeremiah's time for him to uh, devote some attention to them. Um, so the first one in verse 28, it's not really cities at all. its It seems that these are nomadic peoples who dwell in the desert, um, Arabian tribes, um, and they have been mentioned a little bit. Um, but um, So first is Kedar, Uh, as well as what is here called the kingdoms of Chatzor. Now, Chatzor, of course, is a very prominent city um, northern in Israel, um, uh, very well known since, you know, basically the earliest days that Israel came in. Remember, Chatzor was kind of like the leader of the coalition uh, in the north against Israel when they first came in under Joshua and was one of the only cities that was destroyed with fire. Um, by the invading Israelites. But this is not the same thing, and it's not entirely uncommon, of course, in the Old Testament to see um, multiple places with similar names. And in in fact, kingdoms here, Mamlakut, can also indicate chiefs. So it could be concerning Kedar and the chiefs of Chatzor, because it seems very clear um, that that what is spoken of here is... um, uh, refers to, uh, as I said, um, uh, Arabian tribes dwelling in the eastern desert, and um, and y- you kind of see that where you know it's Kedar and the the kingdoms of chatzor in verse twenty eight, and then it goes. Thus says Yahweh, rise up, advance against Kedar, destroy the people of the east. So the par- look, notice a the parallelism there. Kedar, people of the east, uh, and then but first we get Kedar, kingdoms of chatzor so Chatzor is being used apparently for the name of um, uh, of otherwise obscure tribes that are living in that desert, and this, um, of course, and it says that this happens when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, struck them down. So again, all pretty much all of these oracles of judgment that we are seeing are ones where God is using Nebuchadnezzar as his instrument of judgment. Of course, an extremely prominent theme in the Book of Jeremiah. Um, so, uh, and and notice all of the the language that that the people that he's speaking of are indeed tribal nomadic people. Their tents and flocks have been taken, right? It's not cities; it's tents and flocks, curtains, cur- tent curtains, right? Uh, in verse tw- in verse thirty one, it'll say that this is a people with no gates or bars. Um, it it, uh, it will also will also see that it, it describes them as those who cut the corners of their hair which is what is said of those who dwell in the desert back in 926. This is apparently like, uh, you know, hair fashion uh, for for people out there. Um, Their camels will be led away from them. Men shall cry terror on every side. This, of course, is a um, kind of a standard Jeremiah phrase, as we've seen a bunch of times already in the book. Uh, Flee uh wander far away, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Chatzor, for Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon, has made a plan against you and formed a purpose against you. And then we see another one of these interesting uh ways in which the the wicked will of Nebuchadnezzar is being used by Yahweh to accomplish his purpose, right? So this is the 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 plan, the purpose that Nebuchadnezzar has against you, but in the very next verse in verse thirty one you have Yahweh commanding him, rise up against a nation at ease that dwells securely, so clearly we see you know uh, to use the words of Isaiah, right, the axe in God's hand, only there, of course, it's referring to Assyria, but um you know we we see scriptures speaking like this a lot uh against these people with no gates or bars who dwell alone right there in the desert. Their camels will be plundered, their herds of livestock a spoil. I will scatter to every wind those who cut the corners of their hair. I will bring their calamity from them um, um, from every side of them. Um, so you can see them just surrounded in the desert by Nebuchadnezzar's army. Chatzor will become a haunt of jackals, an everlasting waste. No man shall dwell there. No man shall sojourn in her. Uh, then next we have a, a very short. Um, Oracle of judgment against Elam, and Elam does not really get a lot of attention. Also in the Old Testament, probably even less than Kedar. I would say um, uh, one claim to fame is that back in Genesis thirteen uh, fourteen, uh, Kedar Laomer, one of the invading kings who you know sacked um, the the cities of the valley, and then Abraham went and rescued him, and then uh, rescued everybody, and including Lot, and then you know Melchizedek comes out. Well, Kedar Laomer, the kind of the leader of the the king, the invading kings of the east, there was uh, referred to as the king of Elam. Now, Elam is very distant; it, it's east even of Babylon. It is a very um, prominent city in ancient Near Eastern history. Uh, the capital of Elam is Susa, and um, we we can't we don't know a ton about uh, what's going on with Elam at this time. Uh, but we do know that uh, it does seem to be the case uh, from uh, the Babylonian chronicle that Nebuchadnezzar did indeed mount uh, an attack against Elam that may have been preemptive in nature that he, he was concerned that they would rise against him uh, but um uh, but this is a word against Elam um and it's in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah king of Judah and if that's the case that the that Babylonian chronicle which which probably mentions Nebuchadnezzar fighting against the Lamb, although it is fragmentary. Um, It's interesting because that's like right after Zedekiah um, takes the throne of Judah in like 597 or so. And so, um, you know, what, what Jeremiah is saying here like happens very soon after um, after he he proclaimed it. But thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, I will break the bow of Elam, the mainstay of their might. So apparently at this time they're very associated with their um their archers, right? That that they're very very proud of that. And that is kind of like their claim to fame and why they are to be feared. Um I will bring upon them, upon Elam the four winds from the four corners of heaven. This is a standard way in, in the Old Testament of speaking of kind of like wind coming from everywhere. We have the expression also used in Ezekiel 37, 9, Daniel 8, verse 8, Zechariah 6, 1 through 8. Uh, and I will scatter them to the winds, and there shall be no nation to which those driven out of Elam shall not come. I will terrify Elam before their enemies, before those who seek their life, bring disaster upon them, my fierce anger. I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them, and I will set my throne in Elam and destroy their king and officials. The setting of a king's throne in another land is, of course, um, a statement of domination, of subjugation. Um, Jeremiah actually begins with this against Jerusalem, right, where the king's uh, for foreign kings come and set their thrones at the entrance of Jerusalem's gate. um chapter one, verse fifteen. Um, also Nebuchadnezzar more recently we've seen in Egypt. remember the the imagery with the 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 big stones being placed under what is there called the the palace of Pharaoh, but it's probably like a you know summer residence or something like that. Um, uh, and then Nebuchadnezzar coming and and setting up his throne there. We saw that back in forty three verses 8 through 13. But in the latter days, I will restore the fortunes of Elam. So this one is capped off with a word of hope, which is more than we can say for um, Kedar and Chatzor, for um, Damascus, and also for um, Edom. Now, finally, after all these nations receive their denunciation, attention is turned to Babylon herself, right? The, the instrument of God's judgment held accountable for the sin that is indeed in his heart right like god is god god uses the 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 actions of nebuchadnezzar and his armies and his officials but they are accountable for their reasons for doing these things and for what they have done um this is the last big prophecy in jeremiah after this it's basically some narrative about the fall of jerusalem uh, the word that Yahweh spoke concerning Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans. Declare among the nations and proclaim. Set up a banner and proclaim. Conceal it not, right? These, these, and, and you want to tell all these nations because they're the ones who have been rocked by Babylon, right? So this is almost like good news that you're announcing to everyone. Babylon is taken. Baal is put to shame. Merodach is dismayed. Her images are put to shame. Her idols are dismayed. Baal is actually the... Um, uh, um, uh, it's 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 the rough equivalent um of the Akkadian word, the Babylonian word for um that that's that's um, similar to Baal, right, which basically means Lord or master. And although this has been used for other deities, it's pretty clear here that it is referring to this deity Merodach. Who is Merodach? Well, this is the Hebrew Bible's way of spelling Marduk, who is Babylon's chief god. And indeed, in several Babylonian texts, well, a lot of Babylonian texts, he's referred to as Baal, as Lord. So in his own land, Marduk is Baal. And um, for example, in the Nabonidus Chronicle, the final king of Babylon, the fa- or final Babylonian king of Babylon, um, uh they decry the fact that the that uh that Nabonidus is neglecting uh Babylon and their worship of Marduk, and every year at their Akitu festival they they uh plan on bringing him out of the temple, bringing Marduk out of the temple and the way they refer to um to this not happening because of the ne- neglect of Nabonidus is Baal did not come out <laughs> okay so um so this is a you know a denunciation against their chief God. For out of the north, a nation has come up against her, right? This is a taste of her own medicine, right? Because throughout Jeremiah, Babylon has been the people who are coming out of the north. But now another nation will rise up against her. This, of course, is the Medo-Persian coalition um, under Cyrus the Great, um, which shall make her land a desolation, and none shall dwell in it. Both man and beast shall flee away. And this will be good news for Judah. And so in those days and at that time, and indeed we see right under Cyrus, they do return to the land. In those days, in that time, the people of Israel and the people of Judah shall come together weeping as they come. They shall seek Yahweh their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with faces turned towards it. Come, let us join ourselves to Yahweh in an everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten. So the people— made ready for the new covenant, which, of course, we've seen mentioned in chapter 31, uh, verses 31 and following, and then chapter 32, verse 40, very briefly. "'My people have been lost sheep,' God says. "'Their shepherds have led them astray.' turning away on the turning them away on the mountains from mountain to hill they've gone they've forgotten their fold all who found them have devoured them their enemies have said we are not guilty for they have sinned against the lord right so babylon who's being judged here is like hey there this is god's judge there there this we are we are Yahweh's instrument right there there we're not guilty um uh, they they deserve this right but no god is holding them accountable um Uh, So finally, these words to Judah, uh, verse 8, flee from the midst of Babylon, go out of the land of the Chaldeans, be as male male goats before the flock. Behold, I'm stirring up and bringing against Babylon a gathering of great nations. And of course, Cyrus does just incorporate all these other nations into his army to make uh, his empire formidable um, like the world had never seen uh, before then, and they shall array themselves against her, against Babylon. From there she shall be taken. Their arrows are like a skilled warrior who does not return empty-handed. Now, I'm not sure of this, but remember Elam was well known for their bow in verse 35. Well, Elam is one of the nations that ends up getting incorporated into Cyrus's army, so uh, maybe that's uh, uh, maybe their uh, skilled archery, which they're they're feared for is due to Alam's presence among them. Chaldea shall be plundered. All who plunder her shall be sated, declares Yahweh. And this is not the end of the oracle against Babylon. We will see uh, tomorrow Jeremiah continuing that. All right, let's go now to Psalm 119, 113 through 20. So this is the Samek stanza. Samek is one of the two Hebrew letters that makes the sound S. Um, and uh, so... I hate the double-minded, but I love your law, okay? So those may be double-minded, right? Those who um, uh, at some points are committed to the Lord in his ways and at other times are, are committed to their sin, right? Uh, you are my hiding place, my shield, I hope in your word, okay? So it's not just that we claim God as our hiding place, the one who defends us, but actually that through our commitment to his word, we can say that, uh, depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God, right? And we all know this, that sometimes other people in our lives can hold us back from that. And if we have, like, these relationships with people that are making it difficult to walk with the Lord, maybe it's time to put some distance between you and them, um, always with love, always with wisdom, but nevertheless. um if our priority is following the Lord, then we need to prioritize our human relationships accordingly. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live, and let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. I like that. That's interesting, right? Usually the one who has regard for God's statutes is the one who's trying to keep them in Psalm 119. Here, it's God himself, right? That, that, uh, uh, help, help me! I'm trying. I'm, I'm trying to follow and do what you said, and, and, um, and you, you enable me to do this, and you also bring about good in my life for me doing this. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. Uh, all the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies, and my flesh trembles for fear of you and I am afraid of your judgments. And there, of course, is a powerful statement about this biblical concept that we kind of have a foggy relationship with, this fear of the Lord, right? And, I, you know, this idea of trembling before Him and being fearful of Him, being fearful of His judgment— and I think the way that I the way that I say it often is, it is the one who fears the Lord who does not need to fear the Lord, and that's kind of like the interesting, um, almost like paradoxical way to think about the fear of the Lord in the Bible. That, and as you say, see see here, right, that, that he cares about following the Lord more than anyone else, and so the consequence of uh, not walking in the ways of the Lord, he fears greater than the consequences of not walking according to the way of the wicked or those who are pressuring him or his own flesh. Okay, uh, 2 Timothy 2. So again, this probably Paul's last letter uh, directed to Timothy. He's probably writing this from Rome, where he will eventually or fairly soon meet his end in this world. Paul writes to him, "'You then, my child,' be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus I love that the idea of being strengthened by grace um, God's unmerited favor to you brings you strength the fact that you were his and I I I think of that in, in moments when I do need strength right when you need strength against your sin perhaps or um or um, when you need when you need uh, help in the midst of a struggle right reflecting on the fact that on, on the gospel of God's grace, on the fact that God loves you and sent Jesus to die for you and has made you his own. Remember, like, in Ephesians, how much he wants them to know the hope that is theirs, um, kept in heaven for them, right? Like, that—the That, that the reason he's saying things—he says things like that, and the reason other uh, parts of Scripture say things like that, like I think of, like, First Peter, or the first chapter of that as well, right, is because— is because focusing on the gospel itself helps you in life, is itself a practical step in forming your mind and helping you to think the right thing and think the right way about your struggle with sin or about your struggles that come as a result of suffering in somehow, uh, that, that, you, that you are somehow encountering. Um, And what you have heard from me, Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses... Notice how public the Christian faith is, right? These things I've taught you unashamedly and openly in front of others, those things that you've learned from me, entrust now to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And this public aspect of the faith that Timothy is to pass down, this letter itself is a testimony to it, right? Like, it's a letter to Timothy, but... Pretty much everybody ends up reading it, right? Um So Paul wants to make very public what the what true and right doctrine is. and he wants Timothy now. He knows that he his time has gone on and so now is almost up here in this world. And so he wants Timothy now to take up that mantle and to be faithful, to entrust it to other men who have shown themselves to be faithful. Um, you know, to meet the qualities of uh, overseers and all that stuff, right, like above reproach, able to teach, all of this stuff, who will then be able to teach others. Notice the handing down of the faith. Um, So they are faithful men who can also be trusted, as I am trusting you now, Timothy, to hand this down. Um, Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Right. Remember how how suffering is a a key aspect of the servant of God. It's 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 a uh, suffering for the cause of the gospel and how you go through it. And now he will bring in three basic ways to describe the life that Timothy is to leave. One one is he will describe it as a soldier, right? And what particularly about a soldier here? A soldier doesn't get entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Well, you were enlisted by Christ Jesus, your job is to please him, kind of like what we saw in Psalm 119, 120, with the fear of the Lord, right? The the one whom you fear is the one who enlisted you, the one whom you care about pleasing is the one who enlisted you. And so the civilian affair, things that don't have to do with the kingdom of God, things that don't have to do with the call of Christ Jesus— be careful not to get entangled in those things. And entangled, right? Like, be careful what you commit yourself to in this life. Um, I remember a little while back, I was asked to join the Freemasons, okay? And this is just one silly example. There's a lot of other examples in my life, right? And, um, you know, it's kind of—on one hand, you're kind of like, well, George Washington was a Freemason, Uh, right? And all—you know, (laughs) and— Um, and you know, there's some a lore of having like a fraternity of guys who all like, you know, get to I don't, I don't know what they do. Um, but you know, it took about five seconds for me to be like, now, like <laughs> I've got, my job is to please the one who's enlisted me. Right. Not to get entangled, like committed to these things that don't really have to do with the kingdom of God. And they're just going to sap my time and that are just going to sap my energies, um, an athlete. Here's your sec- his second comparison, right? So you're, you're like a soldier, you're also like an athlete, and you're not crowned unless you compete according to the rules, okay? That's an interesting way to think of it, right? Like, if you cheat, okay? So you know the way that God has told you to live, and that's how you are to live. Uh, and then third, it is the hardworking farmer. So we get soldier, athlete, and farmer, the hardworking farmer who ought to have his first share in the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Christ Jesus. That's an understatement, okay? And what about him? That he has risen from the dead, that he is the Messiah, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, okay? Bound with chains as a criminal, okay? Remember my devotion to this, Timothy, and you need to be ready to have the same devotion as well. But even though I'm bound with chains, the word of God is not bound, very similar to his attitude in Philippians 1, right, where he rejoices that the gospel still goes out and that the praetorian guard has heard it since he's been in prison. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, because I know that the word of God is not bound and that people are watching me and that, um, and you know, all these other sufferings I've gone through, like, even if I'm having hardship, the gospel is still going forward. The the success of the gospel does not correspond to whether or not I am miserable, Um, that they also may obtain the salvation in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And then he gives them a saying, if we've died with him—notice the union with Christ here—we also will live with him, very much pictured in baptism, right?— if we endure, we will also reign with him. So the Christian life involves perseverance. If we deny him, he will also deny us. So beware of falling away. And if we are faithless, right, even if, even when we are faithless, maybe to the point of falling away, maybe even not so much, maybe just in our struggle with sin, he remains faithful to us. You never have to doubt Jesus' faithfulness to you for he cannot deny himself, and it is his nature to be faithful. Remind them of these things, charge them before God not to quarrel about words. Now, here we see stuff that sounds a lot like what he was saying in 1 Timothy, right? To not get involved in silly controversies. This is something that we have to be careful of. What kind of controversies are we going to let ourselves get the vote, get get pulled into, um, which does no good but only ruins the hearers? So that's what silly controversies um uh do to you uh do your best to present yourself to God right you're offering yourself to God you are serving him the one who enlisted you as one approved a worker okay if you do the work of the gospel you are a worker this is your this is your job this is this is you know get get your boots on get you know get put on the armor you 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 are a worker you need to work hard at it um who has no need to be ashamed that before God, you know that you are doing the best that you can, rightly handling the word of truth, right? Is the word of God in responsible hands if it is in your hands? But avoid, and here it is again, irreverent babble. It'll lead people to more and more ungodliness, right? Don't get caught up in silly controversies and weird doctrine and stuff like that. And their talk spreads like gangrene, right? Like people... People devour that stuff and then rot because of it. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened, right? There's a false teaching in Paul's day. You can imagine how much that must have been freaking out the people that they were saying it to. They're upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. And then he gives these two quotes, which I don't see reflected anywhere in the actual Old Testament, so I don't think he's quoting Scripture here but um, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Certainly scriptural truth, And uh, but it's not clear where Paul's getting those sayings from. Uh, may have been things that became popular for him to say, or people, or early Christians to say. Now, in a great house there were not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. So some things you use for stuff that's, you know, you're busting out the nice china, some stuff, you know, you're you're using to, uh, you know, to fry your chicken in or whatever, right? Um, uh, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. So you, the worker in the gospel, you are a vessel. Is that vessel cleaned and ready to be used for honorable purposes? Um, and he will be set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. It's never just about the content that you teach. It's about who you are as a person as well. That is, You need to be an embodiment of the gospel. So flee youthful passions. Here's how you do it, right? Flee those things that you loved as a child. When you were a child, you thought as a child, you were governed by what brought you pleasure, what brought you prestige, what brought you fame, right? and rather pursue faith, love, and peace, along with everyone else who's calling on God from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. There it is again, right? You know they breed quarrels, because the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but rather must be kind. So if you are a minister of the gospel, how are you to people? Are you not just, not just saying the right things, but being kind in it? Uh, are you able to teach? Do you patiently endure evil, correcting your opponents, but with gentleness? There it is again. Are you gentle? A true teacher of the cross is a gentle teacher. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. That's why you want to be gentle. You're not just winning arguments, you're winning people. And that's what a minister of the gospel needs to be like. All right, well, that's it for today. Uh, Very much appreciate you being with me. Uh, we are far into the journey now. We're coming along the home stretch, and so uh, I say to you, as I always do, until tomorrow, keep reading Scripture. Take care, and the